know, again, when, when we sing these beautiful modern hymns of praise to the Lord, so often I think of the passages of Scripture that lie behind those songs and the words of those songs. And it began with the very first one that Paul Damano sang as a call to worship. That actually comes from, because he lives, that actually comes from John chapter 14. Judas had already left to go to the priest to betray the Lord, and he's with the 11 disciples in the upper room. And he says in John 14, uh, uh, around verse 19 or so, 20, I never memorized the verse numbers. After a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you shall live also. Because he lives, you and I live. We live an abundant life here and now and throughout eternity because he lives, because he rose from the dead. Part of his life on the earth, it was a life of service. The key verses, if you recall, from when we covered the gospel according to Mark was in John chapter 10. The Lord himself says, for even the Son of Man, a messianic term, from Daniel that he used most frequently of himself more than any other title when he referred to himself it was son of man for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many he is our example in life and in service if you didn't get a chance last week to go by the ministry tables with all the different ministries in it, let me add my word of encouragement to that which you already heard from Allie. The Lord doesn't ask us to be flogged within an inch of our life. He doesn't ask us to carry a physical cross out to a place of physical execution and to be nailed to that cross and to die a torturous, painful death. But he asks us to lay down our life in service for one another. It may not seem like a lot, but it's what the Lord wants. So I encourage everyone here this morning, go by the ministry tables if you didn't last week. Speak to the ministry leads, locate them and speak to them if they're not at the table this week. And find out if, if a ministry that interests you, if you might be a good fit for it. If you're not sure, try it and see if the Lord blesses your efforts. And then go from there. If not, don't become discouraged. There's another ministry that the Lord would have you serve in. But he's called us to lay down our life in loving service for one another. Would you do that today, please? The Lord will bless you for it. Again, we're in the warning passages in Hebrews. This is the second one. It's a long passage beginning in chapter 3, verse 7. 
Some might even say verse 6, and going through chapter 4, verse 13. So not only did you get to hear some of the warning from David, you got to hear it last week from me, and Lord willing, the, yeah, unless he snatches us up before we're done, you're going to hear more of it from me, and then next week you get to hear some of it as part of Gilson's message. He'll rewind a little bit and cover some of the verses that I will finish up with as a necessary introduction to his message. By way of review, I want to go over the key verse of the passage we covered last week. That key verse is verse 14. I, I thought after I got home last week, I should have had this slide up on the screen. And so by way of review, I want to bring out a key point. Verse 14, we have become. Now, the form of the word have become is something that happens in the past. It's very clear in the original Greek language that the writer is writing in. He goes out of his way to use this form of have become. He uses a different form for almost all of his verbs throughout this passage. But when he comes to this, he uses a special form that indicates it happened in the past, it was completed in the past, it was finished in the past, and the results of that completed action carry on into the present Actually, I should be going this way from your perspective, into the present, and sometimes, depending on the subject and the context, into the future unchangeably. So here what he's saying is what happened in the past has been done, and the results or the effect of that continue on to the time of his writing. We have become, in the past, partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You can know for certain that you are saved, that you will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know that for certain if you hold fast firm until the end. The assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God in Romans 8. He bears witness, he gives that assurance that we are children of God if we are holding fast. If we are not holding fast, there is no assurance. Rather, there's conviction of sin. Conviction is a tender mercy. It's an act of grace from God to get us back on the path. God forbid that we never stop feeling conviction over our sin. If we do... Then, as Paul wrote to Timothy, the, our conscience is seared as with a hot iron. As the writer to the Hebrews repeats over and over again in chapter 3 and in this passage in chapter 4, he calls it a hardness of heart when we're no longer convicted of our sin. Now, this statement, we have become in the past partakers of Christ if we hold fast it's equivalent to the following statement. We can invert 
the logic of both parts, the statement and the if part. We are able to invert those and have the exact same meaning, and sometimes it's clearer. Some people will teach from verse 14, well, they lost their salvation. See, they were partakers of Christ, but now they lost it. But that's not what the writer's saying at all. The scriptures are very clear that anyone who truly has salvation, not just anyone who professes it with their lips, but anyone who truly has salvation will never lose that salvation. The question is whether someone who professes salvation with their lips ever had salvation at all. The writer could have written the exact same truth in the following way. We have not in the past, we never in the past became a partaker of Christ if we do not hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we don't hold fast, that is a clear indication that we were never a partaker of Christ in the past. This is what he's teaching here. The only way you can truly know for sure, with 100% absolute certainty, is to hold fast. That's what he's saying here. I, I'm not deviating from the words of the text at all. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. We have not become partakers of Christ if we do not hold fast. It doesn't mean, as, was mentioned, as I thought last week, that the believer doesn't struggle with sin at times. Maybe even sin has knocked us down and we're taking the 10 count. But the true believer in Christ will always get back up. It is God who gives us the power to get back up. It is God who gives us the power to walk the path of righteousness, following in our Lord's footsteps, living as he lived. But this was key last week. The evidence of salvation is holding firm until the end. The title of today's message then is Hold Fast to God's Salvation Rest. In these verses, Christ is revealed as a greater than Joshua. Joshua was the one who led the children of Israel after 40 years in the wilderness, led them into the promised land to claim the promised land that God had promised to the Jewish people. First to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob. Christ is revealed as greater than Joshua since true rest is only found in Christ. If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. God wants you to know that there still is time for you to enter his salvation rest. He wants you to know this. If you're hearing these words, there is still time to enter his salvation rest. 
We're going to look at this passage, these 10 verses, under two main headings. Most of the time we'll be in the first heading again. Fear that you fail to enter God's salvation rest. And we're going to see that comes right from the text. Fear. We don't like that word, but God used it in this passage. And then secondly, know that God is offering you his salvation rest. So let's dig right into the first heading. Everything in these 10 verses is based upon the wilderness example from chapter 3. Therefore, the word therefore shows that the writer is drawing some conclusions, some inferences. He's going to make some application of the truth that was stated previously. In light of this truth, therefore this, what he's about to write. Let's just take a look at the closing verses of chapter 3. With whom was he angry? God was angry for 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? They were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear. Because of that wilderness example, he's going to base all of his teaching on the truth of that wilderness example and what happened in that wilderness example. The wilderness example should make you and I fear, a holy fear, a fear of God's judgment. That's what the wilderness example should teach us. He gives a word of exhortation here. Let us. And what is the word he chooses? He chooses fear. Maybe you or I would have chosen another word. I probably would. I don't like to think about fear. But the Holy Spirit inspired these words. The writer thought what these Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians who had turned from Judaism, turned to Christ, professed salvation in Jesus Christ. According to Hebrews 10, some of them even lost their homes and property. They were willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. But now because of ongoing persecution, maybe now threatening their lives, some of them had and others were tempted to turn their back on Christ and walk away and go back to Judaism. He tells these people who named the name of Christ, fear, let us fear. And so this is perfectly appropriate for the believer today. We should never be overconfident, especially if our life is a life of sin. God did not allow a life of sin in those that he had brought out of Egypt. Remember, these people, they survived the destroying angel, the death angel, on the night of Passover. Remember, they escaped the chariots and armies of the Pharaoh of Egypt in the parting of the Red Sea. They had come out of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea, Every time they needed something, they cried out to God. 
and he would answer them. They cried out for water in Exodus 17 before they got to Sinai where the law and the Ten Commandments were given. And he gave them water out of a rock. He delivered them miraculously every time they needed it. They had all this real life experience. But now in the face of persecution, they were going to turn away from Christ and go back to the life that they lived before. Let me remind us, I'm not talking here about anyone that you know who has left Grace Gospel Church and is going to another Bible-believing church. They're living for the Lord. But when I came to Grace Gospel Church a bit over six years ago, I heard stories. And since that time, I myself have run into a very small number of people who didn't simply leave Grace Gospel Church. They left Jesus Christ. They turned their back on Christ. They're not even pretending to be Christians any longer. They want nothing to do with Christ. And again and again, what I was told and what I've actually seen happen, when they turn their back on Christ, their marriages fall apart. Their lives are in ruin. Some of them even end up in jail. Let us fear, if not for the grace of God, go I. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, I do fear. I do fear. Because I know that if God ever removes his hands from me, I could be one of those. It is only God who keeps us. We are kept, the scripture says, by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. God is the one who keeps us. Never have too much confidence in yourself. Let us fear. Let us cry out to God that he never lets us go, that he holds fast to us. He will hold fast to every child, but that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to fear. He's giving this exhortation to people who name the name of Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, experiencing the wrath and judgment of God, is not simply a message of fear like it is in Quran, in Islam. Allah is to be feared, and that's it. The God of the Bible is not merely to be feared. He is to be loved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a gospel of judgment. There's, gospel means good news. There's no good news in judgment. It is the love of God that sent his son. It is the love of Jesus that went to the cross to die for all those who have and will cry out to him for salvation. The promise of God's rest should give you hope. 
The gospel is not just a message of fear. It is a message of hope. Therefore, while a promise remains of entering his rest, this promise should give you hope. You can enter God's salvation rest today. If you cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation, the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The scripture tells us to turn, repent of our sins and turn to God. He will save you if you trust in him, in what Christ did on the cross. When he hung on the cross, he said the work of salvation was finished. It is finished. You could also translate it, it has been completed. Guess what? That's the exact same form, verbal form, that the writer to the Hebrews used in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have become partakers. That's finished. You've become a partaker, and the results continue on. It is finished. It was completed in the past, and the results continue on, unchanging. The gospel gives us hope. Because he lives, we shall live. The possibility of falling short should make you fear. He says, therefore, let us fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Here, these were not people who, when they heard the gospel, out and out rejected Christ. Oh, I don't want any part of that. That's a fairy tale. I don't believe that. How can you believe such a story? No, these people actually embraced it. They actually claim they believe it. But some of them would come short. Miss heaven by a hair's breadth, by the thickness of a hair, and you've still missed heaven. Fear lest you come short of it. It should make you fear. The writer says, it should make you fear. The Holy Spirit who inspired these words says we should fear. Fear can be healthy. Fear of getting burned keeps us from putting our hand on the hot burner, on the stove. Fear can be a good thing. We can fall short of it. Romans says this as well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's his absolute holiness. In Isaiah 6, we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Connecting holiness, repeated three times, or stated three times, and his glory together. The glory of perfect holiness. Everyone has fallen short of that. None of us can claim to be perfect. The possibility of hearing the gospel and not profiting from it should make you concerned. In verse 2, for indeed we have had the good news preached to us just as they also did, but, it, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There's the possibility of hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of what Jesus Christ did 
and not profiting from it. There's a big difference between taking the truth of the gospel and understanding it with our mind, understanding it academically, understanding what those words mean and what the implications are. There's a big difference between understanding it and having faith in it, believing in the heart. The mind is simply the place of intellectual agreement. I mean, two plus two is four, right? Put a gun to my head. Three, five, you tell me what the right answer is. I only have an intellectual commitment to two plus two equals four. But true faith and trust is a heart commitment. Something that you're willing to die for. Something you're willing to lay your life down for. It's more than just mere intellectual agreement. It's devotion. It's commitment. Uh, perhaps a marriage relationship illustrates that. When you first met the person who was or still is your, your spouse, you only developed an intellectual agreement with that person that that person could be the one you would want to spend the rest of your life with if you felt anything at all it was infatuation it's only after years of marriage and laying down your life for that other person that there's this deep heartfelt commitment to that person that you would never want to violate You'd never want to destroy that trust. There's a difference between intellectual agreement and heart commitment. The certainty of faith should give you hope. The writer says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Faith makes everything certain. The writer says, we who have truly believed, not just professed with their mouth, those who have truly believed do enter God's salvation rest. No doubt about it. It is as certain as the following. God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All you have to do is read in the book of Numbers and you will see that they did not enter God's salvation rest other than Joshua and Caleb who believed in the promises of the Lord, trusted in the promises of the Lord. As certain as those Jews who came out of Egypt passed through the Red Sea as certain as those Jews who saw the power and majesty of God at Mount Sinai, who witnessed the miraculous provision of the Lord day after day with the manna, as certain as they did not enter the promised land because of lack of faith, it is that certain that you do enter God's salvation rest through faith. 
Just as there's no doubt that they died in the wilderness, there should be no doubt. Faith gives you certainty. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer will say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith is not wishful thinking. Buying a lottery ticket and hoping you win is not biblical hope. You have no promise from God, no statement from God's word that, will say, that says you're going to win this week. That's wishful thinking. But when it comes to faith, faith is rooted and grounded on what God has said what he said in his word, his promises. It's not wishful thinking. It's trust in what God has said. Faith gives us certainty, and that certainty should give us hope. The realization, there are only two options. This should make us think. In verse 4, the writer says, he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. There's only two options. God rested, and he's already said, we can enter that rest, God's salvation rest, and they shall not enter my rest. There's only two options, enter, not enter. There's no third option. There's no middle ground. Jesus Christ taught this very same truth. In the Gospel of John, Christ said, he who believes in him, in Messiah, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Condemned and not condemned, only two options. Whoever believes in him, John would write in John 3, verse 36, he who believes in him has everlasting life. But he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. There's everlasting life or there's wrath. There's wrath or no wrath. There's life instead of wrath. There's only two options. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. Oh, but my God is loving. He will never condemn anyone. Well, that might be your God, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible tells us there's only two options. The God of the Bible does not delight to judge and condemn. He gave his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. He gave the best that he had. I have one son. I wouldn't give him for anyone's life in here. But God gave his only son, his one and only. I should lay down my life for you, but I shouldn't lay down my son's life. Yet God loved the world so much that he gave his only beloved son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't delight to judge. He gave his son. 
Paul writing in Romans 8 tells us so clearly, he who gave his only begotten son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He already gave the best that he had. You can trust him for everything else that he promises. Eternal life, living in glory with him. But there's only these two options. You know, as I've said before, you know, God has given us one way. If he had, why didn't he give us two ways? Why didn't he give us 50 ways? Why didn't he give us 100 ways or 1,000 ways? If he gave us 1,000, we'd want 1,001. It's enough that he gave us one way. And he doesn't ask us to do anything other than to truly believe and trust in it with our whole heart. Turn from our sin and turn to him for salvation. Know that God is going to is offering you even now his salvation rest. But only some will enter it. Know that only some will enter God's salvation rest. Therefore, in light of everything that he said before that there is rest, don't harden your heart. It remains for some to enter it. Will you be one of the some? If you've never truly trusted in him for salvation, never placed all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation on the cross, will you do it today? It remains for some to enter it. Sadly, some will not enter it. He doesn't say all. God is not just going to receive everyone. Jesus Christ, you can read the Gospels for yourself. Make note, Christ himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus Christ. Some will enter God's salvation rest, but sadly, some will not. Will you turn from your your ways this morning, your attempts to please God and trust instead in what Jesus Christ did on the cross? God's rest is only found in Jesus Christ. Know that God is appealing to you again and again to enter his rest. As long as you have breath, God is appealing to you to enter that rest. He again fixes a certain day. What day? Today. Saying through David after so long a time, about 400 years, from when he swore in his wrath, the children of Israel will not enter his rest. About 400 years later in Psalm 95, David writes the same thing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God appeals again and again. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He puts out the same message 400 years later as part of a call to worship in Psalm 95 to the Jews. Again and again, God appeals to the unsaved not to harden their heart. Today, if you hear his voice, 
If the Holy Spirit is convicting you today of your sin and the need of the Savior, turn to Him. Come to Him. Cry out to Him now for salvation, and He will save you. Paul phrases it this way in writing to the Corinthians. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Not next week, not tomorrow, not even this afternoon. Now is the time, the accepted time. Don't harden your heart. God forbid that that be the last that you ever hear his voice beseeching you, urging you to come to Christ for salvation. Know that God's salvation rest is still available to you. The doors to salvation, to God's salvation rest are not closed. The gates to heaven are not closed, barred, and locked with angels, cherubim, with flaming swords, standing guard that no one may enter. The gates are still open. God's salvation rest is still available to you. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You can still enter that rest. It's still available to you. Oh, Paul, but I've done so much evil in my life. You don't know the things that I've done. God will never receive me. He says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't see anybody's name written there except for Paul Johnson, except for whatever your name is. No, there's no except there. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him in true faith and trust, wanting to commit your life to him. He will save you. God wants you to enter his salvation rest. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. God wants you to enter that rest. You can be the one who has entered. That's up to you. You decide. You choose. It is your responsibility in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ to believe. He's not going to force you. He's not going to take a cattle prod and prod you in. If you reject Christ now, then he will reject you for all eternity. If you turn to Christ now, he will hold you close and love you for all eternity. God wants you to enter his salvation rest. We've seen that Joshua did not give them rest, true rest, because God still offers rest. Christ is revealed as a greater than Joshua since true rest is only found in Jesus Christ. God wants you to know that there is still time to enter his salvation rest. So today... Will you begin to develop a holy fear of failing to enter God's rest? May this concern drive you to cry out to God daily for his grace, for his mercy, to hold you fast and keep you close to the truths 
that are revealed in Scripture that are found only in Jesus Christ? And will you begin to earnestly desire to enter God's salvation rest? If you haven't, will you make that an object of prayer? If you're not sure, will you pray to God each day, God, be pleased to give me that desire to enter your salvation rest. If you do that sincerely, he will give you that desire and you will come to trust in him for your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you so much that it gives us hope that the only thing that that gives us hope to face tomorrow is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because you live, Lord Jesus, we live and we can face tomorrow. We can face whatever comes our way because of you, because you hold us fast, because you keep us strong, because you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live like you did. Help us to always do those things that please the Father the way you did. Encourage our hearts, dear God, with your truth. We thank you so much that you have drawn us to the cross, that you have given us the gifts of repentance and faith, and that we have trusted in Jesus Christ for your glory and your name's sake. We thank you for the eternal hope that it gives us. And we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face. And then we will praise you and we will worship you as you deserve with purer hearts and nobler lips and more perfect words. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would come quickly. Snatch us up to be with yourself even now, we pray. For your name's sake, amen.